Many Christian grad students and faculty feel like orphans. They're often not accepted in their faith communities due to their intellectualism or in their academic circles due to their faith. How one campus ministry leader teaches integration after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service, and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Hello, and welcome to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan. When I started as a grad student here at UW, I remember the challenges I faced with living a balanced and integrated life. Finding a strong faith community on campus and living out my faith in my academic career was at times very difficult. Today's guest is one of the crucial people who helped me address these challenges at UW. John Dahl has been working with grad students and faculty to bridge this divide and find balance for 30 years. In his role at InterVarsity, he's helped to shape the lives of countless individuals over coffee and mentorship. In this episode, he shares his story, his theology of ministry, and his advice to incoming students. John Dahl has served as the InterVarsity campus minister at the University of Wisconsin-Madison since 1995. John has a degree in agricultural engineering technology from the University of Wisconsin-Platteville and a master's degree in theological studies from Regent College at the University of British Columbia. He's also on the board for the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation, of which Upper House is an initiative. Please enjoy this conversation with John Dahl. So glad to be here today with John Dahl, one of the people, one of the first people I met when I came to Madison in 2010. So John, we've known each other now for over 13 years, right around 13 years at this point. We're recording right at the beginning of the semester. Um, So welcome. Good to talk to you. It's great to be here, Dan. So, John, you and I have uh, hung out a lot. We've worked together. Um, but I don't actually know uh, part of your story, which is the story of how you got into this particular line of work. Uh, tell us who you work for, what you work, what, what is your work. Mm-hmm. And then tell us about when that became an idea in your head that this would be a line of work you wanted to be a part of. Sure. So I work for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and uh, work with graduate students and with faculty currently. I have been doing that for the last 28 years. That's mm. uh, a little hard to imagine, but that's actually true. Um, and then prior to that, I worked for, with undergrads for six years mm. uh, at UW-Platteville and UW-La Crosse. Uh, it, it first came into my head, probably, in, uh, as a student, I came to the university as a pretty unformed Christian and got involved with the, I was, I saw a sign for a sports group I assumed called InterVarsity. And I was wrong. It wasn't a sports group. It was a campus ministry. Um, But um, uh, I had a great experience as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. Loved working with um, fellow students, discipleship, evangelism, mission. It was all, I was up to my ears in it. Double majored in campus ministry as well as engineering and agronomy. Mm. And had a great time with it. Um, I went on to do two years at Regent College uh, uh, in, University in of Vancouver. Vancouver. Yeah. yeah, in Vancouver. Uh, in Vancouver, J.I. Yeah. Packer, Klaus Bachmiel, yeah. those guys. And then uh, came and worked for the USDA for five years. And um, during that time, InterVarsity approached me about working with a group of students to start a new fellowship at UW La Crosse. And it was four of them plus me. And I met them over. Uh, uh, a, a ice cream cone at Flavors, and they made a pitch to me to help them out, and I said yes. And so mm. that was my avocational golf game. This is mm. supposed to be fun, <laughs> and it was. I had a great time. It was the best gig in InterVarsity as being a volunteer. And then InterVarsity kept approaching me about coming to work for them full-time, which I thought was a terrible idea. And uh, I had a great <laughs> career going as an agronomist engineer and um, did not want to uh, uh, go beg for money and be a campus minister. But I had a strong sense of call from the Lord, you need to go do this. And so against all my inclinations or desires, I said yes to that call and um, submitted my resignation uh, the following day, effective six months down the road. So it gave Mm. me a six-month lead time. 
to actually get into this. Mm. So that was in 1995. So, uh, me, that was in 1989. 1989. Yeah. So, uh, you started by saying you work with faculty and grad students at UW Madison. What does it mean to work with? So for people who aren't familiar with what university does, what are the things you do with faculty and grad students? Sure, that's a great question. Um, if you can imagine, uh, I think a lot of your, your audiences were part of campus ministries or a church during college. And I assumed that working with grad students would be just like working with undergrads, only they'd be smarter, deeper, faster, better read, uh, wiser, all that sort of thing. And I turned out that it was true about the smarter part, mm. but not so true necessarily in anything else mm. in terms of social IQ, um, capacity, that kinds of stuff. Mm. Uh, I was really impressed with the grad students I met here in terms of just how, um, how interesting they were in terms of their fields of study, that mm. sort of thing. But doing ministry with grad students turned out to be a very different and dif more difficult uh, transition than I anticipated. Mm. So uh, grad students tend to be much more focused on their work. Uh, they're professionalized to, to think really, uh, it, it, everything that they do is really kind of work oriented. Mm. And I had to get used to the idea that I'm working with people trying to do campus ministry for whom this is never going to be as big a deal for them as it was with undergrads. Right. That was, uh, that was one of the biggest things I had to get used to. And then uh, faculty are, are just an even more acutely formed group of people than our grad students in that they think about uh, their job 24-7 and trying to get them to release some time and energy and creativity for doing ministry on campus was an even harder sell than it was mm -hmm. with grad students. So when, uh, when you're thinking of grad students and faculty, I think, you know, one thing I remember doing as a grad student was being part of a Bible study. Mm -hmm. And we'd meet it was a, a group of grad students and we'd meet at one of our homes every week and we'd be working through different passages or a whole book or whatever. There was also some larger gatherings where I'd meet other grad students who, who were Christian, um, who th that'd be the only time I'd see them in part because you're just so siloed in your, in your areas. And then I know I met with you uh, on a semi-regular basis and a lot of just one-on-one -on -one conversation. Is that just trying to give people like a sense of like, what's a a week in the life of, of John Dahl. Um, is that the, is that sort of the lay of the land, sort of these uh, different gatherings that you're trying to organize to get people together to actually be in community and to be focused on some type of community and discipleship? I don't know. What, how would you describe sort of the, the way you're trying to organize people or, or get them to, to act? So love that question, Dan. Um, what I, think about doing, and if you remember this, I would do coffee with you and other student leaders, and I would just become caffeine soaked. Mm. In fact, I would say that my job, uh, one of the uh, um, dangers of doing my job is caffeine poisoning. <laughs> I just have drink a lot of coffee with a lot of different people. The people I'm trying to meet with are typically leaders. So I'm trying to invest in people who will in, in turn invest in other people. That's sort of the nature of what I was doing. And so when I ran into somebody like you, who clearly has capacity, it would be a matter of um, what are you up for and what are you willing to do? So we would think about small group Bible studies and we've had, a, you know, we would try to foment as many of those around campus as we could of having like-minded grad students or even relatively new Christians or even non-Christians join us and in getting into the word and hopefully having a deep experience of community and prayer and Bible study. And then uh, besides that, we would also have those group meetings like you were describing in which we'd have a speaker, somebody who could speak broadly to people in the humanities and the sciences and so on, and try to do those on a semi-regular basis. And then in addition, we would do groups of uh, people in uh, the discipline. So it would be humanities or in engineering or in the hard sciences or in public policy and trying to think about the integration of faith and learning and either reading books or uh, chapters or articles, that sort of thing, just trying to figure out what are, who are the leading figures in our field, who are, what are the leading ideas, what are the things that you're learning, and how do you evaluate those ideas and those movements in your field from within a Christian perspective? Right. And that, that last part, the disciplinary specific ones around humanities or, or the natural sciences or something, those, we do that work here at Upper House as well. Those are some of the most important ones for grad students in particular and faculty, because it's just, um, at least at a place like UW, like that's not the level of the conversation within the actual departments. The, 
the faith integration part's not, maybe if you went to a Christian college, that would be a different conversation, but a place like UW, you have to sort of create those conversations. Um, they're not going to just happen in your department. So I know I appreciated that just hearing from a few, I don't know if any historians necessarily spoke, but even an English professor, a philosopher, someone who's dealing with generally similar questions and methods, uh, how have they thought about their Christian commitments in, in relation to you know, their very specialized, mm -hmm. very specialized work. Well, one thing you, you said was that you're, you have the threat of uh, coffee poisoning or caffeine poisoning. Just asking you to speculate here. I don't know if you ever thought about, is there a th theology of coffee or like <laughs> a, a reason why coffee is the particular drink? I mean, I know there's sort of a social practice of drinking a lot of coffee on campus, but anything you've, you've drinking more cups of coffee than probably anyone in, in listening, uh, zone of this conversation. That's, that's really possible. <laughs> I think I'm up to number five today and, oh, and the day's yeah. not done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it really, it's about hospitality. When you invite a person to a cup of coffee, what you're really doing is, is uh, inviting them to a place. And there's, I think I've been in every coffee shop multiple times on the Isthmus, mm -hmm. so you name it, I've probably been there. But you're inviting them into a space that is about a conversation. So you're meeting with somebody face-to-face -face over a cup of coffee or tea or whatever it may happen to be. And the, uh, what happens in that space is me asking questions about a person's life. Mm -hmm. And them, to the extent that they're comfortable doing so, just sort of divulging the details of, of where they've come from and what they made, makes them uniquely them who they are. And then I just work my way through a set of questions that really try to understand who they are as a person, but then also their spiritual formation, as well as their passions and their interests, that sort of thing. And as I'm listening to them, I'm trying to think of where are the places that we could invest in them mm. that in turn they might invest in other people. Mm. Very interesting. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking, we have a colleague named Cam Anderson who might rival you in terms of number of cups of coffee uh, he's had in his lifetime. Um, uh, I think well. that's certainly true. Uh, he, he invited me to cups of coffee when I was a student way back when. In fact, he used to sleep on my couch when he would visit my university and come <laughs> to my town. Uh, there were some very memorable evenings of, of uh, putting a sleeping bag on a couch and Cam would, would uh, hang out with us. That's fascinating. Um, one last question on this front, and um, uh, this is very local, but I'm just wondering what your answer is. Over your years of working at UW, is there a particular coffee spot? It, it might be in existence now, it might have been in existence years ago, that was like the sweet spot for you, the place on campus that facilitated the best conversations, actually had the best coffee, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I know things have changed a lot. We're talking after COVID, there's been a number of places that I used to like right on campus that have moved or shut down just in the last few years because of rearranging buildings and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, what comes to mind when you think of the best coffee spot in your ministry years? Yeah. Pre COVID, it was probably Espresso Royale. Oh yeah. Uh, you remember that On place? state street. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, that was probably the, 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 the de facto place I would meet with people. I had a mm -hmm. great vibe, really good coffee, really enjoyed the management mm -hmm. of that place. And then just two doors down and up a floor, the sunroom cafe yes. was a great place to hang out. Uh, Mark, who ran the joint, uh, always treated me well. Uh, he gave us two for one coupons for us to take new students there. So we, for a price of one coffee, you get two. And the <laughs> idea is that leaders in the fellowship would then take new students out for coffee yeah. and uh, try to build loyalty to, to the place. And so those are my two favorite pre-COVID, neither one of which survived COVID, by right, the way. Right. And so now it's all those in the Wood oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, University and Randall. Yeah. And that's, that's a great place to meet for people in the sciences and in engineering. That's a really easy place to meet. If it's on State Street, uh, then it's um, the University Club now mm -hmm. serves pretty good coffee and it's central to Chase Museum. I just came from there actually having coffee with somebody mm -hmm. and um, their little outdoor bistro kind of a place is, is a nice place to meet people. Yeah, that's great. This, will, this is irrelevant to people not in Madison, but uh, John's described a lot of classic places, particularly on the east side of campus. That's um, where the humanities are and, and uh, where a lot of coffee drinking happens. Um, well, John, I want to uh, pull out a little and get a sense from you of what interests you about the university. Why? There's so many different sectors of our society. Um, there are so many different places that are influential in our society that if you're of the mind that you want to be a Christian presence or minister to people, you might pick any of those sectors. And so the university is a particular one. 
Um, it's gotten a lot of focus. A lot of ministries are focused on universities. What interests you about the university? And why do you, well, yeah, why'd you pick that as sort of your area of vocation? Yeah, uh, that's a great question again, Dan. The, um, when I first got started in campus ministry, I was just trying to do kind of what I, had been so influential for me uh, as an undergrad. And so that's where I started in 1989 in Platteville and La Crosse. And then eventually, after four or five years of that, I, I realized that as I could, and in fact, I had a couple conversations with two successive chancellors in which when I was describing what I was doing, of seeing a group grow from five to 50 to hundred plus, is that they couldn't have really cared less about what I was doing, nor could they have cared less about how the groups had grown. What they were interested in was that I was providing a non-alcoholic alternative hmm. for students on a Friday night. And I realized that um, as good as campus ministries can be with undergrads, is that they really have almost nothing to do with how the actual institution runs or what the institution cares about. And so I was thinking, if you really want to change the world, as Charles Habib Malik uh, famously quoted, if you really want to change the world, change the university. And so it was that quote in, in that book that really got me thinking about where do I want to plant myself if we're going to change the world and change a university, what kind of universities do you need to be at to do that? Mm. And so an R1 institution like UW, as well as any other big research university, is a really great place to start. And so Cam Anderson, who we just talked about a little bit ago, sleeping on my couch, mm. uh, had been the grad faculty ministry guy here at UW. And he approached me about succeeding him because he was leaving to go do something else. And I thought, well, kind of like Archimedes, if, I, if you give me a long enough lever and a fulcrum I can move the world. I've naively and stupidly thought, well, if you give me a, if I can be at UW, that's the fulcrum. Mm. And with God's help and the right people, we can move the university and we will thereby change the world. Now that is, that is breathtakingly naive. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, that's what I was thinking at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll get to how your thinking evolved or changed uh, over time. I do want to spend a, a couple moments on that period where you entered. So what year did you start uh, graduate faculty ministry at UW? Yeah, so that was uh, 1995. 1995. So um, the 90s are in a moment right now. They're sort of a nostalgia for the 90s um, in all sorts of ways. Um, and I, I know working here at Upper House, we often, there's a lot of people here who were shaped by coming to grad school at UW in the 90s and are you know, now further along in their careers, but had really good experiences in university or, or other uh, churches in town. And there was something pretty exciting, I guess, about, uh, well, I don't want to build it up too much, but it seemed like there was, there was, there was a lot of activity um, at UW in the 90s for, uh, for Christians who were grad students. And uh, yeah, talk to us about that. What was it like to, to join campus in the 90s? Um, any particular moments or images uh, stick out to you here decades later? Yeah, I remember um, uh, one of the first things that stood out to me was that working with undergrads, I could never serve alcohol. That would just be a great big no-no. And when I first came to UW and working with grad students in which everybody was of age and uh, going to the terrace and then the students getting pitchers of beer, that was, that was uh, an eye-opener. It was like, <laughs> we can do that? We can drink beer and uh, be part of a campus ministry? No joke. And I thought, this is great. <laughs> uh, that, was, that was a very early experience. But another piece of the puzzle of this was just how um, free grad students were back then to say yes to different sorts of things. Mm. Uh, they had much more freedom to say yes to things, and they would try things. They would experiment. Um, being in ministry was just uh, a really great sort of a cauldron of activity, of people, of personalities. We could experiment and just try different sorts of things. And over time, I think people have become much more conservative mm. in the sense of they're much less, less risk-taking involved. They are less willing to try things for the first time. They want to know what's been tried and true. Uh, so the university has changed. Mm -hmm. The students have changed over time. 
But the 1990s, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was catching people at a great time of the university's history at its own moment, mm. as well as the students and how they were formed in the 1990s. It was just a really great time to be on campus. Yeah, and I, I just reflecting on that, that change, um, I mentioned already I came in to grad school here in 2010. And even then, so that's quite a while ago now, but um, there was definitely a, uh, this probably happens every, um, every decade, but there was definitely a very strong socialization in my program to be very career-minded right away. Like UW is a very prominent school in my field, but to actually get into the guild Afterward, you need to be dedicating 100% of your time to making that happen. And so any extracurricular activity, not just ministry, but really anything that wasn't driving you toward finishing the PhD and developing a certain set of CV-worthy uh, you know, lines, uh, was you really had to question, why should I be doing that? What could I be doing with this time instead? And again, I know that probably every, gener- every decade, there's people like that. I mean, it's been competitive in, the, in these fields for a long time. but I know in the humanities, in history where I was, there was also this sense after 2008 that there was this job market just collapse. And so it was even a smaller you know, door that you could get into to be part of the guild. And I think one of the parts of that that's changed a little is that really the entire purpose of a PhD program was to produce professors. That was the gold standard. There wasn't much else that was seen as um, a success outside of that. So I know that's changed a little, at least in the history department, where they're much more trying to prepare students to go into all different types of work after their PhD, not just try to become tenure track professors. But I guess I'm just resonating with you that it's, it's at least since my time, it's been much harder to um, get students to do things that didn't have an obvious career um, payoff somewhere down the line. Even if it's a vague one, at least you can tell it in a story of, well, I'm doing this for, you know, future gain. But, you know, if we're just going to read some books and talk about you know, big ideas. Well, what, you know, how's that actually going to help me when my colleagues or my peers are doing, you know, lab work or publishing another paper or whatever. So, um, have you, did you, have you noticed that change sort of toward that more, um, a narrower set of practice or activities being okay? Yes, I, I very much so. I've noticed that students, uh, generally tend, generally tend to have a much narrower range of interests. Mm. Uh, they used to have a much broader range of things they cared about, things they invested in, places they were willing to go, travel, um, activities. Uh, and I just noticed that students now generally tend to be much more focused on the profession. They're much more professionalized to the guild, uh, that sort of thing. I mentioned being really uh, naive uh, a little earlier. And one of the things I was naive about was I, I was idealistic about what universities were about. And I assumed that them producing students with PhDs to go out and change the world, they had their own vision of what changing the world looked like. And it was a conversation with a guy named Robert over at Union South. I still remember this conversation vividly because Robert helped me to understand that the university is not about producing PhDs. It's about producing publications. And that whether you're in the sciences or anywhere else in the university, they're not trying to produce PhDs, they're trying to produce publications and that PhDs are the exhaust in the process. <laughs> they, they grant PhDs only as sort of a finish line, you did it, but really they're about publication and how many did you produce and, and what kind of impact did they have, that sort of thing. And when I, he helped me to understand what the university is actually about, in terms of an engine of prestige and honor, that sort of thing. Not about idealistic sort of changing the world, but about um, professors burnishing their careers and their publication record and using the hard labor of their PhD students to do it. That was an eye-opener and made me much more sort of a realist about what's actually going on here. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about um, the university as an influential institution, and then also just now about maybe a more cynical or realist understanding of what is actually being produced there. But I, I've heard you say, John, a number of times that um, to change the university or to, to even have a positive influence, you need to love it as an institution. So talk about what do you love about a place like UW? Like what's the ideal that you just hope for it or what, what happens on a daily basis that is, um, yeah, the inspiring part or, or the part that we, we want to steward and, and encourage? Yeah, that's... 
Another great question. Um, I my when I first arrived, I loved this place. I really did enjoy just the the vibe on campus, its setting, the the, the people I was meeting it was just super interesting to me, and I was really enjoying it. But my my wife uh, noticed after some months, she asked me, "Why are you so angry?" Uh, about your work. And I said, I'm not angry about my work. And she said, I think you are actually. And as I thought about it, I realized she was right. And that these people I was getting to know and really enjoy, uh, I was also noticing how misshapen they were as people and how fearful they oftentimes were and how anxious they were. And I wanted to understand why. And I realized that the university, as much as I loved it, was also misshaping and mistreating the people in it. Mm. The University of Wisconsin is hard on people. And it's not just the UW, it's also any institution of higher learning, particularly in R1, is just really hard on the people around it. And so I had to get over my initial sort of infatuation with the place and then work through what was actually going on with my student friends and faculty. Mm. Uh, the, the, the most fearful person I have ever run into or, or group of people at U, UW are not grad students, but rather pre-tenure professors. Mm. But the first three years of their career, they're trying to establish themselves in their department. And there's no guarantee that they're going to make it through tenure, which is a six-year process. And I, I watched how painful that was for these people who oftentimes newly married, maybe with a child or two, with a mortgage. And it's like, can I or can I not make this work? Mm-hmm. Or watching people put off having marriage and children and a mortgage because it was no guarantee that this was going to work. And so putting off things that their contemporaries were happily investing in and they didn't feel like they could. So they were living like, like a 20-year-old when they are 30. <laughs> and it was like, this is mm-hmm. painful. So again, getting over my initial sort of infatuation and then working through what's actually going on here and then coming to a better, sort of stronger love for the place, but more as a place that I wanted to become, more so than the thing that it actually is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I was laughing when you said living like a 20-year-old when you're 30, because that was, that was me. In a way, I was married, but um, we put off a lot of stuff and say, oh, just wait till I get through grad school. And of course, grad school takes a long time. So you're, you look up and you're 31 years old and you're still um, uh, living not much differently than when you were 21 years old. <laughs> in a lot of ways. And, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting also just, um, seeing how that plays out now I'm a little older and seeing how, um, uh, peers who didn't go to grad school have much different lives in their mid and late thirties than you do when you're a grad student through your thirties. There's a, a clinical psychologist have a term for this, which I have forgotten, but it's about people who are pathologically able to put off near-term gratification for a long-term goal. Mm-hmm. Most of the people I work with have that diagnosis. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you only succeed at grad school if you can uh, um, put off the short-term enjoyment for long-term gain. So I'm around people who are really, really good at denying themselves mm. uh, to, their, uh, to a fault and to their detriment. So I'm trying to get them to loosen up. A lot of my life is just trying to talk to people and having a good time. <laughs> That's what it feels like. So. <laughs> well, that gets us to... Um, another question that goes to sort of your philosophy of ministry or how you, um, how you try to work with people. So in the Christian world, you might call this uh, formation or discipleship or spirituality or something like that. But what's your approach to that? You've mentioned a few things that people are uptight, um, afraid. These are things that uh, Christians are not called to be. They're called to be the opposite of those. They're called to be joyful and, um, and not to worry and, and other things. So how do you go about trying to actually form people in the way that they should be formed given the university context? I, the principal thing that I do is trying to identify people who can lead small group Bible studies and lead them well. Uh, and that generally means having a basic understanding of how to treat the scriptures well, how to study it, how to ask good questions about the who, the what, the where, the why, observation, interpretation, integration, application, all that kind of stuff. But then also, secondly, making sure that each group has people who understand how people work. Mm. And if we can create communities where people are cared for and genuinely loved and prayed for and give them a deep experience of community, you find that people are able to sort of let their hair down and actually be real with each other. So much of being a grad student, especially, I think, faculty, it's performative. 
they, they adopt a persona in order to be able to succeed. And what I'm trying to do is get them, give them a place where they don't have to have that persona. They can just be who they are. Mm-hmm. And if we can do that, then I feel like we've actually done something really helpful. So, so many grad students uh, tend to be schizophrenic in the sense that they have a persona that they put on for the university. And this is true of faculty as well. In order to succeed, they adopt this persona. And then at church, they may have a very different persona. And that is uh, clinically like schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do is help people to be one person, not two people, and to be fully who they are at church and to be fully who they, as an academic, bringing their academic interests and passions into that realm, as well as bringing all of their spiritual interests and passions into the academic realm, to live one life as one person, not just this schizophrenic, uh, and they're really good at it, by the way. This compartmentalization can be a strength, but when you over-cultivate it, I think it leads to really unhealthy people. Mm. So this is the historian of me is going to come out for a second and ask, do you think that, uh, you call it schizophrenia, but that, that separation of personas, a sort of professional persona and church persona or personal persona. Do you think that's something that students, Christian students have been dealing with for hundreds of years, all the way back to the beginning of the university, or is it something in the 20th century or even late 20th century and 21st century? That's a problem. Like, is this, is this just part of being in the university world in the modern West, or is it something that's more unique to a certain last few decades of, of university life? I think that it has probably been true going back as, to the beginning. Uh, I think there's always been a tendency of who you are in public is different than who you are in mm-hmm. private. So that's, that's sure, as old yeah. as yeah. human nature. But what I think has changed a lot since I've been around is the rise of social media in particular in the last 10 to 15 years. And people realize that they have to brand build even uh, in their early, in their teens and 20s, mm-hmm. that who they are online, that they are, they are building a brand for themselves. And they're really good at um, making sure that the world sees them through a particular kind of lens. And the, the professional lens and link, you know, the, the different sorts of social media built to that, mm-hmm. of them cultivating a persona and a, a face to the world that is really cultivated. Mm-hmm. And that has only become more exacerbated over time. Yeah. And to our detriment, I worry about that. Yeah. It reminds me, so I was a freshman in college when Facebook came out. It was at that point when you still had to have a .edu to get and i was at colorado state so we were not one of the cool schools that got the first wave but we were like in the second or third wave and i remember um i I wasn't really aware of it at the time but and this was really crude facebook so you know 2000 what would this been 2007 uh no 2004 uh early 2005 would have been the spring of 2005 and um i remember feeling this right away which is i realized and i wasn't the only one oh this is like permanent uh whatever's on facebook it's not going away. I mean, hopefully you can delete some of it later, but you know, I want to get a job in a few years. And so I need to, you know, think about what, what goes on here. So I I might've been, you know, on the tail end of people who could have had sort of a time in your teenage years where that wasn't part of the equation. When I was in high school, there was no social media. So there wasn't that permanency of cultivating a public persona. But since then that feels like that's, yeah, as you said, only gotten worse. And um, that leads me to a question and it might be social media. That might be the answer to this question, but is there a particular generalizable problem that you've faced ministering to faculty and grad students over the decades? Like what's the, the thing that you just see come up over and over again or transcends the decades. And it's just, um, seemingly, um, even if we're in the 2020s now, it's the same problem it was in the nineties. What's the sort of ministry challenge that you faced over and over again? The thing that comes to mind immediately is uh, the problem of depth. Hmm. Um, what I've noticed when I was reading uh, like Wallace Stegner's Crossing Over to Safety about life on campus here in the 1920s hmm. was the amount of time that people could could give to a deep community, social relationships, hanging out at the terrace, at the university club, going sailing, all that sort of thing. They could be a successful academic, but they could cultivate depth and all kinds of different sorts of ways. 
And increasingly, from when I started in 89 till the present, what I've noticed is that the clock speed of the people I work with is just going faster and faster. And so the um, tenure requirements for faculty, the, the publication record you have to have in order to be able to gain tenure is like streets deeper than mm-hmm. it was a generation ago. And grad students feel it keenly that they need to, everything they need to do needs to be productive in some respects. And when you are cultivating that, when people feel that and say yes to, to the university, say yes to academe, to a life like that, they become thinner and shallower as time goes on. Instead of cultivating depth, they're cultivating productivity, mm-hmm. but they're not, it's not necessarily deep. It's, it's uh, what's the least publishable unit that you can actually get published, the smallest publishable unit. And instead of being really creative and productive in a, in a deep sense, they're being productive in the sense of pushing a publication. Mm-hmm. But that, that generates and, and shapes people to be really thin, sort of one-dimensional kinds of people. And that is dangerous, mm-hmm. quite honestly. And I'm so uh, late in my career, that is the biggest thing that I think I perceive happening over time. And I don't see how the university is going to change in a way in which we can become people who are healthier, fundamentally just healthier, deeper people. Hmm. So w- w- walk us through that a little more. So if, um, if I can see how being sort of active, activity focused and frantic in what's the least effort I need to put in to get this thing produced. I can see how that would lead to a lack of depth in actually your, your field. I mean, you're just sort of lowest hanging fruit is what I'm going to go after in my field. And, um, that's not going to produce lasting value necessarily. It could, but it probably won't. How does, what's the knock on effect for other parts of say a faculty member's life? This is one of the things I'm interested in. I know you think about this a lot. You think of faculties sort of pastorally, like, yes, they have their role at UW. That's only one part of what it means to be a human <laughs> and, and to be a functioning, thriving person. So how have you seen that problem of lack of depth um, affect faculty in, in more areas of their lives than just the university? One of the things that uh, is really painful for me, I'm, I'm honored to be part of these conversations, but it's painful, is when I walk into a faculty person's office and I know that they're in the top 10% of their field, let's say. And uh, we're having a conversation about their lives and how things are going. And they'll come around the desk and shut the door. And then they will tell me about what a wreck their home life is, Mm. that they're working on their second marriage or third marriage, that they're alienated from their adult children. And it's because of their commitment to having a great career. And they know their CV, every line on their multi-page CV, they know it top to bottom. And in realizing late in life is like, what have I done to myself and at what cost? If I can't have a healthy relationship with my adult children and they are protecting their grandchildren from me, Mm. what have I done? And again, some of the most poignant and painful conversations I have are with people who are in tears, uh, realizing that the, the cost of that kind of a career has had on them. And so, honestly, one of the things I have had to do, Dan, is with, with new faculty is tell that story mm-hmm. and say, could you be happy with a middling career of being in the middle third instead of the top 10, but having an intact marriage and actually enjoying your children's company and going to their soccer games and doing all that stuff, and a, but cultivating a different kind of a life that's productive in a different way, that's deep in a different kind of a way. Because the reward structure in the university does not um, do anything for helping you to live that kind of life. Mm-hmm. It is all about something else. Yeah. How do you think about um, church in relationship to your ministry? So I can imagine, and I know this happens with maybe students more, but maybe it happens with faculty too, that they gravitate towards something like InterVarsity or Upper House, and they basically see that as their Christian community, that that's that's where they're going to meet Christians and talk about the Bible and other things. And they don't really see a local church as, um, as a viable part of that. And some, I'll just 
give a little um, of my own thinking. Some of that makes sense to me in the sense, and we, we talk about this here a lot, that there's a, a lot of churches that don't really value university work or the intellectual dimensions to, um, to knowledge. And, and, and so you could feel if you're someone who's really into that stuff that, yeah, no one at my church gets me. The people who get me are the people that are already on campus and talking about the same things. Um, so I can get some of the disconnect there, but, uh, I, I know in our fellows program here, we really encourage students not to see the fellows program as their primary Christian community, that they need to be in a local, uh, community that administers, uh, you know, the, the, the elements and baptizes people and, and other things and has sermons and all that kind of stuff. Um, how do you think about that? How do you think about the relation? Have you, I'm sure you've discipled people who are all over the spectrum on, on their involvement in church life, but what's the, what's the take you've had or the wisdom you've gained from, from that? One of the things that um, we do as a matter of course is, uh, is tell students at the front end of their grad student career that the grad Christian fellowship can be a great place for lots of things. But what it should never do is take the place of church. Uh, they need to be in a multi-generational community with little people and with old people. And they need to be a place where they serve, you know, where the sacraments are distributed and cultivated and good teaching and all that kinds of stuff. So campus ministries never take the place of a church. By the same token, it is true, as you say, that lots of faculty feel like they're caught between chairs that as an academic, they feel like they're misunderstood at church, particularly if they're in the sciences. And or I, it's, it's actually true regardless of your, your field, but it's really, uh, lots of people in church have views on uh, creation, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff, and evolution, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And if you're in the sciences, you always end up having to try to defend the sciences against people who think that that's uh, really, really misled. Mm -hmm. And then at work, they can feel like they're really misunderstood by their colleagues in terms of any spiritual commitments they have. So they feel like they're, they're caught in between. They're, they're misunderstood in this environment, they're misunderstood in that environment. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to give them a place on campus where they kind of, where they can be fully who they are and have a community where they can talk through the issues of being misunderstood in, in both environments, that sort of thing. And so we, what we're trying to do is create what, uh, in England, in the city of London, they had guild churches. Mm. We don't have a church, but what we're trying to do is create a, a community in which, like guilds back in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, of the, the pattern makers or the, the bankers would come together with fellow believers and just work through what are the issues of what it means to be a banker or a pattern maker as a Christian. Mm. And that's ultimately what I'd like to do and I've thought of myself doing here. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's an interesting model. Um, guild churches. Uh, well, we just have a couple questions here left. One, you've been on campus for so many years. I wondered if you could just, uh, th think about campus, uh, UW and how it's changed over the decades since mid nineties. Is there any notable changes that you've seen? We've talked a bit about how students relate to each other and to their disciplines and things like that. But on, on a larger institutional level, if you could, if you could summarize the last few decades of UW as just a close observer, someone who knows a lot of people, knows the institution, how has UW changed over the last 30 years? Yeah, the, uh, you mentioned the academic, or pardon me, the economic crisis of uh, 2008 mm -hmm. um, around that time. And what I've noticed, uh, become more attuned to is just how UW is more and more stressed uh, financially. Mm. It's a billion dollar plus institution in terms of its budget, but I have watched administrators of this place just become more and more uh, antsy and anxiety ridden over where are they gonna find the money to do things. And it, and it goes down to the faculty who are trying to come up with money to fund their labs and trying to do good science, but the, the, the funding uh, environment is much more tight and so people around here are just more generally anxiety-ridden about funding. And so the university, instead of being a place of uh, ivy-covered you know, ivy walls and people leisurely going about their studies and really enjoying themselves and that kinds of stuff, which is a very 19th century probably conception <laughs> of the university, is that people here are just sort of like frantically hustling mm -hmm. like all the time. And uh, I've watched that hustle become just more pronounced uh, in the time that I've been here, 20 plus years. 
And again, I'm, I, that's, that's how I've seen it change in a not so helpful way. What is still true, and I still love it about this, is that if you still go on a campus today, it's move-in day. Or this, this whole week is move-in week. Yeah. And there's still this vibrancy and vitality of people coming here with a sense of hopefulness about what this next four years or six years of my life could look like. Mm-hmm. And it's a great time to catch people at that, at that point in their lives. And it's still lots and lots of fun. Mm-hmm. So what I don't want to do is sound too cynical or jade, jaded about the entire thing. It's easy to be. Uh, by the way, there's a lot of discourse, as you well know, about uh, how the university is going to hell in a handbasket, all that mm-hmm. kinds of stuff. And will this place even exist in another generation and all that kind of thing. But still, it, it is just a really fun place to work with a lot of vitality, a lot of interest, uh, people coming from around the world to be in this place. Um, I just, I, I have the best job in the world and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Mm. You know, it's, yeah, we're right here in move-in week at UW and I was just taking a walk right before this conversation and uh, they've, they've sectioned off big parts right around the dorms because all these pickup trucks and stuff are coming in and you know, every, parking on the grass and everywhere you shouldn't park and all that. And it is a really interesting, just sociological phenomenon that thousands and th- we're, we're going to have the biggest uh, class ever this year at UW. Uh, thousands and thousands of 18, 19 year olds are just coming here, being dropped off by their parents. And it's, just, I mean, I did it too. We, a lot of us have done it at some point. Uh, and it's just a weird thing. If you think about it, you just sort of like, yep, go join a whole different, many of these people have never been to Madison before. Everything's new to them. Everyone they're going to meet, many of them have never been to Madison before either. And yet they're going to be socialized very quickly into this institution and within a year see it as their own institution and then be, you know, shaping the culture going mm-hmm. forward. So it's just a fascinating uh, sociological institution in that sense. So much turnover, so much churn compared to most institutions um, in our society. In, in our case, with working with grad students, we just sent out 8,000 invitations uh, to mm. grad students to come join us at the terrace uh, tonight, mm-hmm. actually, which even if a small fraction of them actually say yes, so this we're in trouble. But, um, <laughs> but that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a lovely problem to have. Yeah. But half of the people that we sent invitations to, I was looking over the list, are names like uh, Ranjit or Hamid mm-hmm. or Kyoko. So many of these people are coming from all over the world and they are bringing all the cultural richness of where they grew up and of the institutions that have shaped them to date. And they're coming in with their interests and the things that they really want to pursue and all their hopes and dreams that attend to it. And who, who gets to hang out with people like that and enjoy cups of coffee and tea uh, at the places we were talking about earlier and call that work? Right. That's what I get to do on an everyday basis. Yeah. Um, it's, it, what I get to do and call work is kind of shocking, actually. So. Yeah, yeah. But we'll, we'll end with this question that, that dovetails well. So for students in 2023 who have all the pressures we've talked about of uh, any, any level of student, of the sort of career-minded way of thinking about education, of economic pressures that are somewhat unique, or at least a few decades ago, it wasn't nearly as costly to go to college, who have probably thousands of options, at least hundreds of options of something to do even tonight, you know, even as you're, you're trying to host your thing, there's a hundred other clubs that are also trying to get the attention of, of the students and pulling out from your specific event tonight. <laughs> how do you advise uh, a, a fresh, uh, wet behind the ears uh, grad student to think about their college time, their, their time at UW and how to make the most of it? And I'll, I'll let you take, make the most of it in any direction you want. But what are you hoping they do with their time here? Yeah. For one thing is d- don't operate out of fear. If, if God has called you to this, he will see you through. So don't, there's no reason to be afraid. You know, the, that's the advice of, of Moses uh, to Joshua. You know, uh, be of good courage. Do not be afraid. The Lord your God is with you. So don't operate out of fear and don't operate out of a sense of uh you have to prove yourself uh, as being an Einstein right away. You know, just start with low expectations. Don't be an idiot, uh, but be open, be kind, be generous with the people around you who are probably operating out of fear 
And if you can operate out of a sense of, of hopefulness and gratitude and knowing who you are in Christ, um, you are going to be just fine. Come with me, you're going to be fine. And so if you are operating as a person of, of hope and generosity and kindness, you're going to have quite an influence on your department and people are going to want to be around you because people like you are going to be in short supply. Mm. So start from there and just slowly raise the curtain on who you are. You don't need to throw your Christianity in the face of your colleagues, but like Jesus, uh, the messianic sacred, just slowly pull the curtain up on your commitments and your passions. Mm. And as your friends get to know you and understand who you are, they will eventually catch on to who you really are as a Christian, but they'll have enough context for knowing who you are to not uh, categorize you in a particular kind of a way that you don't want to be categorized. Mm. So just be calm, be cool, be relaxed, and treat people well. You're going to be just fine. Well, thanks for those words, John. One line you had in there was, don't be an idiot. And I think that's a good one line. Uh, career advice reminds me of it's a it's a line from the tv show the office that was um the the boss asked the the subordinate what's the best piece of advice i ever gave you and the subordinate says don't be an idiot it changed my life so um uh so uh, there was more in there than that john but uh don't be an idiot it's a good start uh for career advice as well or for life advice i guess yeah, as well the, the theology of michael scott there you yeah, go yeah life, yeah don't be an idiot all right Thank you, John. It's been uh, a pleasure to talk to you about um, working here at UW. And uh, we're, as we've mentioned, uh, it's at the dawn of a new uh, semester here, a new year at UW. So we're excited to see all the new students uh, here at Upper House for, um, engaging with InterVarsity and other organizations on campus. So thanks for your time. You're very welcome. It was great to be with you. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.